This is God's word. This is the voice of God. This is the only part of this message that you can trust is completely trustworthy. Paul says, do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with other men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor thieves or swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is just what some of you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Pushing down to verse 18. Therefore, flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body. But whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own, but you were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Let's pray. Father, this is a week in which we have seen horrible things happen. We found out Friday um, that evil uh, broke into peace and quiet and joy and laughter in Paris and brought great destruction, great chaos, great weeping that will last a lifetime for families and friends of those who are lost. And the whole world is looking at this, trying to make sense of it. And Father, it reminds us how awful sin is, how tragic, how painful, how destructive it is when men and women turn away from you and decide to go their own way. We see how far the ripple effects of that go. Our sexuality is another place where we see particularly painfully the impact that sin has. And we wonder, just like we do with what happened Friday, where's the solution? What can be done to bring peace and order again? And this passage, you tell us that you will bring peace and order again through Jesus. And so make us believe that about ourselves tonight. For my friends, for us who are stuck, who are addicted, who are hopeless, who are confused, who realize they're attracted to the wrong things, um, we pray that you would bring healing tonight. Tell us the truth and give us hearts that are willing to hear the truth. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You can take a seat. Thanks. So when God starts talking to us about sexuality, we can get nervous really fast, right? And remember what we said last week if you were here. How does the Bible approach the sex talk or talking to us sexual beings about our sexuality? Uh, We told some funny stories about how our parents try to approach that topic. It's usually very poorly done, which leaves for some very uh, traumatic or humorous stories later on in life. But does the Bible approach sexuality in just a naive or prudish, stingy way? Um, or does it approach it a different way? Well, last week we said that when God starts talking about our sex lives or our sexuality, he approaches the topic the way a fireman approaches a really bad accident on the interstate. Post-wreck, right? Post-trauma, post-mangled ball of steel. And the reason why is because the Bible is relentlessly realistic about where you do life. It's not naive. It's not shocked 
at what we've done or what we think or what we desire. Uh, it is always there telling the truth. Not spinning, not manipulating, not lying, not glossing over, but being honest. And so the way God comes at you and talks to you about your own sexuality is the way a fireman comes to you if you've ever been in a bad wreck and had to get pulled out of that wreck. And it can be scary if that's the first time you've ever been in that situation. Because after the wreck happens, you're disoriented, and maybe the first thing you feel is your leg screaming out in pain because it's broken and the fireman is pulling on it to get you out of that mangled mess. Or maybe it's some other place, and, and in order to get you out of that, to begin the process of healing you, restoring you, getting you on your feet again, uh, there's an extraction. So you got to know right up front, first and foremost, I don't know what kind of a background you have. I don't know what kind of church you went to, or I don't know if you've never been in a, a church in your whole life. But you've heard, you have some thought about how God thinks about sexuality or how the church talks about it. However you've heard about it, it might have been wrong, it might have been right. It's the way a fireman approaches that car. It's for your good. It's for your rescue. It's for you to be fully restored so that you can walk again. That's why God comes near and talks to us about these things. Not to slap us on the wrist and put us in order, but to, to warn us sometimes, to heal us, to rescue us, to save you from you, which is one of the biggest enemies human beings face, is myself. Okay, so hear that before you hear anything else, uh, that God approaches this topic that way. Now, I'm about to ask a question that's going to sound incredibly naive to some of you. Would you believe it if I told you that every single person in this room uh, is sexually broken and has nowhere to hang our hat? That's a saying for like nowhere, no, nothing to brag about sexually. No purity, no morality, no track record to point to and say, look at me. I got it right. I nailed it. I haven't done this, I haven't done that, I don't struggle with this, I don't struggle with that. Nobody in this room can make that confession. Uh, it would be a scary thing if we all had to start telling each other what's really going on uh, in our desires and our thoughts with our bodies. Um, but for some of you, this is the most obvious comment in the world. Of course. For some of you, that's a, that's a new thought. Because maybe you think you've escaped the damage. Maybe you think your car hasn't gotten wrecked on the interstate yet. And if that's where you are, uh, I want you to listen extra carefully tonight because the Bible doesn't agree with you. The Bible assumes that all of us have been in a bad wreck and God begins to put us back together. And it does not allow any of us to sit here and say, well, you know, a couple of weeks ago we talked about friendship or talked about dating. That was, that was right at me. But tonight, you know, I don't really struggle with this. Yes, you do. Yes, I do. Uh, can we listen? Um, God has great things to say to us if we can. And so Paul is talking to a bunch of Christians in a town called Corinth, which was like the Las Vegas or the New Orleans uh, or the, or the um, South Padre of the day. Uh, this was a place that was kind of very Hellenized, which means Greek culture, which is kind of like Hollywood culture today, had kind of run amok. And so these Christians are caught in the middle between what they're hearing about this Jesus and then the way they've lived for decades and they both seem to have equal influence on them. And so they're trying to follow Jesus, trying to, to, be, to live in light of the gospel. And then uh, they're super confused about a lot of really important things. Um, and so Paul is speaking to people post-accident, not really clean, nice Christians, 
who had their act together. Otherwise, Paul would have no reason to say the things he's saying in here. And so Paul speaks mercifully, patiently, and sternly. He talks to us, or you could say God speaks to us sternly because sexual sin can keep you alienated from God forever. Uh, sexual sin can keep you out of heaven. Sexual sin can keep you outside of everything God is doing to renew and renovate everything. It can sideline you so that you're over here and God's work in the world is over here. That's how serious it is. And God loves you enough to come to that car and say, the car's on fire, get out. So that's why he speaks to us sternly, not in hatred, but in loving concern. He also speaks to us mercifully and patiently because um, sexual sin can also be the doorway through which God comes into your life and turns everything upside down, changes you for the better. We'll talk about this in a few minutes a little bit more, but, but sexual brokenness, whatever it is, we'll flesh that out in a minute too, whatever that is for you, sexual brokenness is often kind of the broken window in the basement of your soul that God sneaks through. And he starts transforming you, rebuilding from the foundation up. But he snuck through that darkest, ugliest, most shameful place in a lot of our lives. That's how he got in. And so that's why Paul speaks with such hope and such patience and such tenderness. He doesn't just browbeat you. Don't you know better than doing this or doing that? But he, spe- he speaks so patiently, so gently, because he knows God is bigger than your past. God is bigger than your present. God is bigger than your future. He can do with the broken pieces of your life or your sex life what nobody else can. And so I told you what we're going to do is zoom into that third point. That's all we're going to really talk about is how sex is about the gospel, about redemption um, in two particular ways. Um, number one, God recycles or you could say he repurposes or renovates our sexuality. Okay? which means you can change. The second thing is this. Sin still corrupts or damages our sexuality, and so change is excruciating. Okay? So really two points. You can change, and change is hard and painful. Now, if you're not a Christian or if you don't know where you are with God, here's what I want you to do in the next few minutes. I want you to observe and to hear everything I'm saying as God's free offer to you of what he will do for you gladly through Jesus. But this is not true of everybody. This is true of people who are in Jesus. And so you need to hear this as an invitation of what the fireman at your burning car in your mangled mess is offering to do. Um, And all you need to do is say help. If you are a Christian, this is what is true of you now. This is what is possible for you. This is what is within reach of you tonight. Okay, you can change and change his heart. The first thing we wanted to talk about was that God recycles or he repurposes, renovates your sexuality, which means that tonight, whether you're an addict, whether you're stuck, whether you're confused, whether you're attracted to the wrong people or in the wrong ways, whatever, however freakish you think you are or whatever thing you did that the shame will not release you from his grip, you can change. That's really good news if you're in one of those places. Um, how do I know this? Paul says in the passage, you are not your own anymore. He says, God has purchased you at a 
price, which means there was a price on your head and Jesus was willing to pay it. To redeem you, which means to buy back. God created everybody in this room. God has recreated many of you in this room. Um, but you have to be created twice. You have to be born twice. If you're going to be in a, a human being who is alive, fully alive, who knows God as a person, not a distant idea or belief system, but you know God the way Anna and I know each other, as a person with a name, with a personality, with a characteristics, with a history, with a, with a reputation. To know God like that, to be able to change, you have, have to have been born twice, created twice, created once and recreated through God's grace. Make sense? At least intellectually. Paul says, if you are in Jesus, if you're a Christian, you have been bought back. God saw the price tag and didn't get sticker shock. He paid the bill to make you his own, which means you can change now. Um, renovation and repurposing is like all the rage right now. Um, I don't know if you're into Pinterest, but uh, if you've been over to our house before, you've seen some of this stuff on the wall. Like we have an old pallet that's on the wall, and it looks like pallet wood. Pallets are those wooden things that they pack supplies on that they ship all around the world to stores and stuff. And they're really ratty. They're really kind of just crappy pieces of wood. But uh, it's all the thing now to take that pallet wood and to like do artsy stuff on it and put it on your wall. Um, and maybe you're into something, buying old stuff old novelty items or old rusted broken things and you're putting it back together now and it's becoming an artifact or a piece of pride in, in your apartment or maybe your parents are into that. Uh, and this is what I mean when I say God repurposes your sexuality. He renovates it. He takes what is rusty, what is broken, what is dysfunctional and he puts it up on the wall and he makes it beautiful again. That is what I'm talking about when I say that God is willing and able uh, to make you new. And so what does this mean? Hear me on this. Especially if you're one of those people who you feel like, man, I didn't have to think for a second when Ben talked about our sexuality feeling like a, a total car that's been in the wreck. That just makes sense to you because you feel surrounded by the collateral damage every day. You smell the smoke of the wreck every day in your life. Every time you have that thought or that desire or you act on it, you feel the wreckage and you know that. Here's the thing that Paul is saying. It is specifically in the rustiest, ugliest, most broken places in your life. For many of us, that's our sexuality. That you can most expect God to make beautiful things, beautiful renovations. Look, nobody, nobody is impressed when you take a 2015 Corvette that got a little bit of hail damage the last month and they make it look new again. Nobody's impressed. You're like, car looks the same as it did yesterday. But when somebody takes a rusted out, sitting on cinder blocks in someone's front yard, a rusted out, inoperable 57 Chevy and painstakingly restores it, to this shiny, glossy, beautiful, fully functional car, and they drive it around the road, people's mouths drop because of the work, the intricacy, the patience that that mechanic had to put back into that car. I'm saying that God is a God who is not so interested in repairing hail damage on a 2015 beautiful red Corvette. God is a God who likes the 57 Chevy 
because it shows his glory as he puts it back together and drives it around. That is something that drops people's jaws. A human being, broken, rusty, dysfunctional in our sexuality, who has been bought back, and God is repurposing or renovating your sexuality. And you begin to live the rest of your life in submission to his goodness and in life. People begin to see it. They say, that is attractive. I want that. I don't know what it is, but I want that. Uh, There's a few stories like this to prove my point. You remember the story in Luke chapter 7, where there's basically this woman, um, she's basically the town whore. And uh, she ends up busting up a dinner party that Jesus is having with a bunch of the pastors like me or religious people. And uh, this woman just busts right in and um, she goes straight to Jesus. She starts weeping and she says, Master. She washes his feet with her hair. And uh, all of the upper crust people there are like thinking in their heads, he doesn't even know who this lady is. She's a whore. He can't be God. Because if he was God, he would know what kind of woman this was. Um, He can't be God. And Jesus being Jesus, uh, understands their thoughts. And he says, Simon, let me tell you a story. And basically he tells the story, and the punchline of the story is this. This woman, who is a sinner, who is rusty, who is broken, who is in a mangled mess of her own making, uh, has been forgiven much. I have overlooked much with my grace, and therefore she loves much. So he says he takes the woman in town who was, who was the, the, la, the point of everybody's jokes, the butt of all the jokes. She was the woman that you would have walked past and said, thank God I'm not like her. That's the person Jesus went for. You ever heard the story that a guy named Matt Chandler, some of y'all listen to him, uh, his podcast. You ever heard the story he tells that, uh, about Jesus wants the rose? Uh, uh, there's this story that goes around a lot of churches, unfortunately. And this is like a little teaching tool. A lot of people guilt you into sexual purity. A really bad way to go about it. God never does that. But the way they guilt you into it is they say, hey, ladies, your sexual purity is like a rose. And then they hand it to Hillary. They, they say, pass it all around the auditorium. And everybody kind of touch this rose and smell this rose and, and pass it on to the next person. And they notice that by the time the rose gets back to Anna over here, it's... It's all droopy. Its petals are falling off. It's broken. It looks disgusting. And they say, ladies, if you don't protect your your purity, which guy is going to want that rose? They appeal to shaming you to try to get you to follow the rules. And I love what Matt Chandler says in that that story. He flips it on his head and he says, "That that that is a lie from the pit of hell. Who wants that rose? Jesus wants the rose. Jesus sets his bullseye on the worst of the worst. He says he came for the sick, not the healthy. If you think you're a good person, I've got bad news for you. Jesus specifically says he didn't come for you. He says, I came for the unrighteous. I came for the broke down, the fools who've made a wreck of their lives, who've made every mistake imaginable, because they are the ones who need rescue. People who think you're just that 2015 Corvette with a little bit of hail damage that needs God a little bit to help polish you up a little bit, you need to wake up tonight because you don't know God the way you think you know him. Because he says that is not who you are. 
We are people who are broken. We are people who need grace. And God says his grace doesn't just forgive us. His grace renovates us. His grace renovates our sexuality. You heard, uh, you heard this guy named Augustine. He was a Christian alive in the 300s, super famous. Uh, one of the greatest philosophers in human history. Uh, Augustine was basically, uh, he wrote a book called The Confessions. It's his diary. He's a bold guy because he, he was willing to publish his diary. This is 17 or 1800 years ago. And if you read the pages, you'll feel like, man, he read my mind. That's exactly what I'm dealing with right now. Augustine describes it in his teenage years. He was basically a horny little guy. And uh, he basically expressed, I don't know how you want to say it. He basically had sex with anything that moved. And uh, he wasn't a Christian. And then he was converted later, uh, a few years later in his, uh, in his late teens, early 20s. And uh, he became a new man. Jesus began to renovate that ugly, broke-down Chevy 57 and put him back together. Uh, and so years and years later, Augustine is walking through the streets of Milan, Italy, and uh, he passes. This is everybody's fear factor moment. You, you pass that ex, that ex-girlfriend, that ex-boyfriend that you did crazy stuff with, and you're like, oh, gosh, there they are. Let me find my exit. Augustine passes a prostitute he slept with in his teenage years. And worst case scenario happens, she remembers him. He says, Augustine, Augustine, it's I, it's me. And Augustine walks up to her, having been a changed man now. And he says, yes, but it is no longer I. He says, I have changed. Because Jesus took the broken pieces of my past and my present and my future and has put them back together again. And so I am a new man. I am a new person just like that pallet on our wall isn't a crappy piece of wood anymore. It's a centerpiece of our entryway. It's art now. Did you know that God is willing and able and promises to take the most disgusting, regrettable parts, the places you're addicted now, the places you're stuck, the places you're most ashamed about? He is willing to take those specific places and turn them into art that shows the glory of the artist to the whole world. That's what we mean when we say that God is willing to renovate you, even uh, in your sexuality. And so let's get down to earth and not tell stories of people 1,700 years ago. What does this look like now? What does it mean that God is willing to take these places in your life, whether it's same-sex attraction or masturbation or your addiction to porn or what happened to you your victimization, or what you did to somebody else. Um, what does it mean that Jesus can use that particular place to begin to put you, put you back together? What does it mean that that could be that broken window in the basement that he sneaks through and gets a hold of you for the first time ever, like he did with Augustine? Here's what it could mean. How could he use our brokenness uh, to put us back together? Well, the first thing is this. Paul talks about in verse 12... Paul's arguing in verse 12 with this kind of pretend critic. He's imagining what you and I might argue back with him. Because he just said uh, in these earlier passages, you know, wrongdoers, sexually immoral, will not inherit the kingdom of God. That means people who have, who have no interest in changing, no interest in God's mercy, no interest in holiness. They think, man, 
I'm, life's going to be so boring if I walk with God. You feel like you're going to die if you listen to God. That's what he means when the sexually immoral, the adulterers, the idolaters, are going to miss out on the renovation of everything. He's not talking about people who still struggle with those temptations or are exposed to those temptations. But Paul begins to imagine how we're going to fight back and argue with him. And we, we, we would say to Paul, Paul, I'm a Christian. I can do anything I want because God's grace covers me. I'm forgiven. Everything been saying amen. I'm forgiven. I don't have to worry about messing up anymore or hooking up or looking at this and that. Whatever. I'm free now. Paul says, yes, but not everything is beneficial. And he says after that, I will not be mastered by anything. And so how could God use the brokenness right now in your life? He could be using it to show you that this is a place where you've been mastered. You have yielded yourself to another master who is killing you. A master like Isis. A master who oppresses, who deceives, who lies, who kills, who takes life. That's what sin is. That's what Ben read earlier when Jesus died to sin, to set us free from slavery to sin. What he means is when Jesus died to sin, he died to set you free from the Isis of sin in your own heart and in your own life. You're free to walk away now. You don't have to be tyrannized by that. And so Jesus could be using the places you're stuck right now to show you you're not as in control of your sexuality as you think you are. He got a hold of me this way my senior year of college when I was in this mode of like, yeah, pornography is a little bit of a struggle, but I'm getting better at it. These other things I won't get too graphic about are, they're a struggle, but I'm getting better about it. I'm, I'm holding the line. I only did it four times this week instead of five times last week. It's getting better. God used my slavery to those things to hold up a mirror in front of my face and say, Ben, you're dead. You think you're in the driver's seat and sin is in the passenger seat and you're making all the turns? But in reality, you're tied up in the trunk and sin is driving wherever it wants. You can't stop. You're not in control. And I was terrified. And I I was afraid of God all of a sudden. Because I realized I was a slave. But God used even that horrible self-realization, that terrifying self-realization, to begin to free me. That's the window he snuck through to release me from captivity to that. There's another way he could use your brokenness uh, to release you from these things. It could mean that it is specifically your sexual struggles, your ongoing temptations with whatever, to keep you on a short leash. Let's say you're a really great person. Let's say you're a friendly person. People think you're an awesome girl and an awesome guy. Um, But when it comes to lust, when it comes to fantasizing, when it comes to trying to always get a guy's eye or a girl's eye, you want people to crave you sexually. When it comes to those things, you have to look in the mirror and say, man, could God be using this particular place of your life to keep you on a short leash lest you think you're healthy? You're a good person who doesn't need grace, who doesn't need God, and you walk your own way to your own destruction? Could God be using even things like same-sex attraction or the persistence of those attractions, even as you're a Christian now and fight like hell against them? Could he be hijacking what could just be a bad thing and actually using it for your good to keep you so close to him, so desperate, so dependent on him for grace, every hour that you grow more and more and more 
Could he be using those things? And the third thing, how does God sneak through the window, particularly of these broken places, and put you back together? Could it mean that it is specifically your sexuality, your brokenness? That's the place God is showing you that you're the Chevy that's being restored. Could this be the particular place that God is, is persuading you little by little that you really are changing? Because that pop-up ad that got you two years ago doesn't get you as easily anymore. Because you start remembering reality in that moment and you fight. And you say, no, this isn't life, this is death. I wasn't made for this, I'm not an animal. I don't have to look at this. And you shut the computer down and run away. And God is using that particular place to show you that his spirit really is renovating you. Or you dress a little bit differently or you post a little bit different pictures on Instagram or Snapchat or Facebook because you don't want your brothers in Christ to sacrifice their sexual integrity on the altar of you catching a glimpse just for your own sake to get a little more attention. And you're different now. And Jesus is saying, it's real. You really are different. I really am growing you. My question to you before the last point is this. Do you believe this? If you're a Christian, do you believe this? Do you believe that God can bring resurrection even to the dead places in your life? Is hope alive? Or did hope for your sexuality die a long time ago? Or is it dying a thousand deaths of cynicism right now because you're like, what's the point? I know there's nothing, nothing's ever going to change. The last thing I wanted to talk about is st- sin still corrupts our sexuality, which means change is incredibly hard. Why do we still fall even after God begins to change us? Here's why. We change, but sin doesn't. Sin is always like ISIS. ISIS only has one play in the playbook, conquer and destroy. Sin only has one, one, playbook, one play in the playbook, conquer and destroy deceive. Uh, You might have changed uh, by God's grace, but sin isn't changing. And so sin is going to play the same tactics on you that it always does. And so it means when we forget reality, when you forget reality, you will fall into temptation. You'll give in, whatever that looks like for you. There's three, three or four places Paul says this, verse 12 and 13. If you forget who your master is, you will fall into temptation you will give yourself over to a different master. Verse 20, if you forget your purpose, that you were bought at a price to honor the Lord with your body, if you forget your purpose in life, the purpose of your body, the purpose of your body parts, uh, you will give in to temptation. You will become a slave again. If you forget your power, the power that you have to fight sin, in verse 14, you will fall repeatedly. If, and, if, and most importantly, if you forget what kind of relationship you have with God right now, you'll slide away. And that's the entire passage. Paul talks about our union with Jesus. Really quickly, and then we'll begin to, to land this thing. Teleport real quick to that moment today. Whatever you can remember, whatever comes to your mind, that moment today where you gave in or temptation presented itself to you, that lingering look or that thought that you followed or that action that you followed through on or that urge that you satisfied think back to those moments did you not feel mastered by someone other than Jesus in that moment mastered by urges mastered by 
desires, mastered by fantasies, mastered by lust, by your attractions? Did you say in that moment, I have to give in? This is who I am. I'm just an animal, a highly evolved animal. I've got to give in. Or did you by faith argue with those lies and put them in their place? Did you see and believe that Jesus died to sin so that you can say no to sin? That's what Ben read earlier. Were you not confused in that moment earlier today about the purpose of your body, your brain, your eyes, your genitals, your thoughts? Were you confused about the purpose of your body parts? Jesus said he gave you a body and all of its different parts to glorify God and to love other people and to enjoy and to have, to have pleasure that points us back to his generosity. Were you confused in that moment about why you have the body parts you have, the nerve endings you have, the experiences we have? Did we think that our body was simply for our own self-advancement? Uh, or did we believe that we have been bought with a price? Paul says in Romans 16, do not offer any part of your body to sin as an instrument. It's like saying, here's this body part, sin, play it like a trumpet. Play it like a guitar. Have it. It's yours. Or did we realize in that moment, all of me belongs to Jesus? Were you not deceived in that moment into thinking that you have no power to resist this? You believe the lie that you're a slave. Why bother? I fail every time. Or in the past week, I failed seven times and I resisted one time. What's the point? I've got a losing percentage now. Or by faith, did you argue against those lies? Did you believe that you're alive in Jesus, able to fight? Dead bodies aren't able to fight disease. Living bodies are, even though they feel weak and sick. Did you fight or did you believe the lies that you're dead and have no power to resist temptation? Martin Luther said, I cannot stop a bird from flying over my head, but I can sure stop it from building a nest in my hair. Here's what he means. You can't stop lustful thoughts or miswired attractions from popping into your brain. They just, they're there. They ambush you. You can't stop that. But you can control what you do with those thoughts. Do you believe the gospel in that moment? Or do you believe that you're a slave just along for the ride? And the last thing is this. Were you not confused in those moments earlier today about where Jesus was in that moment? Christianity is not a religion that believes about a God somewhere out there that says some stuff to us and we're supposed to do our thing down here and then maybe one day we get to go back there. Christianity says God is a God who marries you when he makes you alive. He unites himself to you. You and God become one. Every time he says in this passage, union, 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 oneness, oneness, oneness. Sex between a husband and a wife is supposed to express how intimate and united God is with his people. Sex is a signpost pointing to a greater reality. In that moment, did you believe Jesus is in you by his spirit, with you, for you, with his power, with your back? Or did he feel like some other God of some other religion sitting on a hilltop somewhere in heaven, shouting techniques to you? Or did you know he is here, I can fight? The last thing I want to say is this, because I do not want you to leave, especially if you are not a Christian. Please stop trying to fight your sin. You can't. 
God doesn't want you to be deceived. If you are a Christian, please start fighting your sin. You're alive. God wants you to fight sin. Not to earn anything from him. But because you're alive. And a healthy body fights off disease. And so if you're not a Christian, again, I want you to hear all that God is willing and able to do for you beginning tonight. His only requirement is that you realize your need of him, your desperate need of him. And if you are a Christian, I want you to remember this. What's your role in this? Should you just sit back and let God do his thing? It doesn't work that way. Grace is opposed to earning, not to effort. The Christian life is incredibly hardworking. Not to earn anything from God, but because of what God has already done. Titus, Paul says in Titus, the grace of God has appeared teaching you to say no. He says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you. This means this, you get to work because God is already at work. You get to exert effort because God is already exerting effort on your behalf. You get to put forth willpower because God is putting forth willpower to change you now which means you get to help him restore the 57 Chevy in the garage the way a father and a son do. God calls you to join him in the process. Will you? C.S. Lewis finishes our entire series on relationships with this quote. He says, imagine you're taking a test and you get to this crazy difficult problem. Some of you have experienced this this week, or you will tomorrow. And it's that kind of a question on the test where you're like, man... I didn't even study for this. I don't even know how to, how to answer this. And it's a short answer. And you have, a, you have an option. Do you answer it? Or do you just skip it and push on? Uh, that's a moment all of us have had. C.S. Lewis says life is like this too. He says, uh, what happens when you get to that moment of temptation or confusion or exasperation and you don't know what to do about it? He says, you may get some points for a very imperfect answer, partial credit, but you certainly won't get any points for leaving the question alone. Not only in examinations, but in war, in mountain climbing, in learning to skate or swim or ride a bicycle, people quite often do what seemed impossible before they did it. It is wonderful uh, that you can, it is wonderful what a person can do when they have to. God says we have to flee from sexual immorality, but He doesn't just leave it there as a requirement, He gives you Himself forever to fight, to participate in the renovation. He gives you himself. Is it difficult? Yes. Is your soul on the line, Christian? No. You have all the space, all the time, all the grace in the world to learn to walk again. The same way we're teaching Eli how to walk. I don't slap him across the face when he falls. I don't get up angry with him in the morning because he doesn't know how to walk yet. We hold out our finger and he wobbles around and he learns how to walk. That's the kind of God you have in Jesus. He is teaching you to live again. He is teaching you to be a sexual being who is righteous and pure and loving. Will you participate with him? Or will you resist him on the floor thinking he's trying to kill you? Whoever you are tonight, come to Jesus. Let your need be the reason you run to him, not the reason you run away. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we need you. That much is sure. I pray that you would persuade us and convince us after 13 messages this semester on relationships, eight or nine hours of listening to this stuff. One thing is clear. You are powerful. 
you are willing and able to change us and we are weak. And so we pray that tonight, send your spirit again to persuade us uh, that you can make us new. Uh, We pray that we would look to you with that hope.